Second Peter chapter one. Before we begin, I'm just say a quick prayer. Father, we depend upon your spirit this morning. We depend on that which you have provided for us. Might you bring forth your truth from my lips and transform them, transfer them to the hearts of those who hear. And might you be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last four or five weeks, we've not been in any book. We've not been going through a chapter. We've been looking at uh, the life of a Christian. We've been looking at, as I keep, I keep, I like to keep saying, if you cut a Christian, what would you find? If you looked inside a Christian... As the Bible describes it, what would you find? And you would find someone who loves Christ, who lives for Christ, and who longs for Christ. Now, I've, I've been pretty heavy. I've been pretty hard on these three things to us. I've drawn the line and says, this is a Christian. Um, some of it I have gotten straight from the Scripture as far as Loving goes, the Bible says, if you do not love Christ, you are damned. That's a hard line, without a doubt. But I've also suggested that to live, to not live for Christ is to live for something else. And a Christian must not, cannot live for anything else but Christ and Christ alone and His glory. I've been very firm on that. And last week, also very firm on longing for Christ. That a Christian desires, yearns for Christ more than anything. Because He is altogether lovely and He is worth it. And He is worthy. And I've done that to hopefully make you think is that me does that describe me and I did the same thing examining my heart my life my words my actions my deeds my desires my affections and we must always always continue to do this because From my perspective to you, I will give account to you that sit here. I will give an account to God for your very souls. And the only way I know to have clean hands on that day is to mimic Paul when he tells the elders at Ephesus before he's leaving them to go to Jerusalem eventually to die, that he has no blood on his hands for their souls because he has taught them, preached to them the whole counsel of God. 
And that don't mean pulling any punches. That means saying some hard things sometimes. But here's what I want to do today. I don't want to pull back and say, but if that's not you, you're okay. Because that's not. Scripture is clear about what a Christian is. But what I do want to remind you of today, if you are a Christian, failure in those three things does not mean damnation. It means you're a sinner. It means you're a person in need of grace. And God is a God of grace. And God provides. So today in this passage, in 2 Peter chapter 1, I want us to understand a few things. And the first point of this morning is not directly connected to this passage, but it is. To some degree, so I want to make sure we understand. And our first thing I want us to think about this morning is the calling of God in Christ Jesus. You have been called. You have a calling. The second thing I want you to understand is when God calls, God equips. And the third thing I want us to see this morning is what He is ultimately calling us to. Okay? So, what I want you to get from this today with keeping in the back of our minds who a Christian is, one who loves, lives, and longs for Christ, that is your calling. And we'll give it some specific... uh, detail in a minute based on this passage, but I want you to understand that you need God to do it for you. You need God to equip you. And to fail in it is not failure in the greatest sense, but just the reality that you need the Lord to do this for you. If you look at verse 3, there towards the end, you see that word called. It says, Him who called us. Him who called us. Christianity is a calling. Um, Some people join clubs because they have an interest with that club or that organization and ask to be a part of it. Christianity is not that sort of club. The Apostle Paul and King David and the Psalms make it very clear, no one's looking for God's club. No one seeks God. Because no one has that sort of interest. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God, no one seeks God. This club will call the church, 
is a club, is a, is a group that you are called into. You're called out of the world and into the church, into the body of Christ. And see, we've kind of made it this thing where I have decided that I need to be in church. And church is a good thing. Church is where we ought to be. Church is where people realize that I know what's right, do what's right. And I'm hoping that if I go enough, that God's going to be pleased with me. The church is an assembly of those who have been called by God out of this world into Christ Jesus. <coughs> been called, been cut out actually. You have been forcefully Christian, cut out of the world. That's what that word sanctification means, to be cut out of, to be separated from. And the word saint, which um, I'm not sure if Peter uses the word. No, he doesn't. Paul typically begins his letters uh, addressing his audience as saints, which is just simply a reusing of the word sanctified to be cut out as ones who have been cut out. Ones who have been separated. Ones who have been called. And it's a divine calling from God. Last week we talked about Christianity being a divine creation and a divine power, right? You remember that? We said that a Christian is one who has ex experienced the divine power of creation. As God spoke into existence... The universe, with his power, he also speaks into existence a true Christian with his power. That same power that created the moon and every star. If you've been keeping up uh, on the news or in social media about the, the newest photos uh, from the telescope that sees farther than it's ever seen before. We've seen more and more, more and more galaxies, not just stars, but galaxies throughout this universe. And God in his speaking, he spoke into existence with divine power every single thing within this universe. And he spoke that same power and raised Christ from the dead. And he spoke that same power when he called you and raised you from the dead. You remember the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37? God takes Ezekiel and he looks over this valley and it's bones. But they're not just bones, they're dried bones. They, they've, been, they've been dead for a long time. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know God. And God indirectly says, yes, they can. And the way they're going to live is that you are going to speak, Ezekiel. You speak the words of God. Because in the words of God is this power, is this divine act of creation, recreation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? And Ezekiel speaks these words. And what happens? The bones begin to rattle. 
tendons begin to grow. The bones come together and form. And over that, flesh forms over these bones and tendons. And there stands before Ezekiel an army. Awakened, given life by the power of the word of God. They were called forth by God. This is a Christian called by God. And it's divine. It's only of God. And he calls you not to just follow Christ, but to follow Christ with other Christians. And he calls us together. Now, if that is true, and it is, Calling comes handcuffed with salvation. Okay? Calling comes handcuffed or coupled with salvation. We have to make sure, we have to make sure that we understand that we don't come to Christ for salvation and ignore the calling. That's impossible. He calls you into life through Jesus Christ and to live for Christ. When he calls someone out of the grave, like he called Lazarus, same calling, same power. He calls them to live. Not just to be saved, but to live. This is the calling of a Christian to live. He says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. To life. The New Testament's very clear that apart from this calling, you are dead. Like Lazarus, dead in the grave. Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses. Ezekiel 36, cold, stony heart, dead. And the calling of Christ, as he calls forth your name, calls you to life. And you're like, I don't remember Jesus calling my name. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and you believed and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says, that was being called. That was being given a divine calling. That was being given life. Life. Life in Christ. Abundant life. And abundant life doesn't mean I'm going to live it up now. Abundant life means life knowing, loving, living, and longing for God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. He has granted to us all things pertaining to life. So this calling is our life. It is. A Christian's life is their calling from God. Uh, this calling is really, and I'm going to help us understand it just a little bit more here in a minute, but I want us to understand how important 
our calling is. Look at um, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. So if you're still in Peter, turn to the left. Go past all the T's. Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians. And you'll get close to Philippians chapter 3. How, how important, how weighty of a matter is this calling? Verse 12 of chapter 3. Now let's just start at 14. Paul says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul has made it his life to live out his calling. Which way is it directed? Towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you're thinking, okay, well that's Paul. Well look what he says. Let those who are mature think this way. He's calling the mature to also press on towards the call. And you're thinking, well I'm not mature, so does that keep me out too? No. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Press on towards the call. Um, you look a couple pages to the left, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 1. We read it this morning already in Sunday school. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul, urge you, Ephesus, saints at Ephesus, called out ones, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, that calling must have weight. Because you know what? There's other places where Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of not just your calling, but of Jesus Christ. Your life, what you do, your calling, is given to you by Jesus Christ. You have purpose, Christian, from Christ. And it ought to be your life. And you ought to strive that your life is worthy of Christ, is worthy of your calling. So when I say worthy, here's, let me help you understand. And we're going to move on real quick. So, um, we got some young folks in here, but Ronald Reagan, not Ronald Reagan, um, help me. Nixon. Nixon, I don't know if he said it or if someone else said it, but after the whole Watergate thing, it was said of Nixon, he might have said it in his speech, his, his uh, uh, resignation speech, that he was unworthy of the office of president. His conduct did not equal or match the worthiness 
of the office of the President of the United States. So if you could take on one side of a scale conduct, on the other side of the scale the office of President, the office of President greatly outweighed the conduct of Nixon. Now, Christian, is your life worthy of your calling, which you received from Jesus Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian, you have told me that you have been called by Christ. And you have a calling. And Paul overemphasizes the fact that your walk, your life, your manner of living ought to be worthy of that calling and worthy of Jesus Christ. This is not debatable. Now, Go back to Peter, Second Peter. And I want to put one word, if we're to define your calling, just one word based on this passage, and we could work through it some other ways and call it some other things, but based on this passage, I want to define it in one way. What is your calling? What is your life purpose? What is the reason why you get out of bed in the morning? Godliness. Godliness. Now, I'll admit, I was defining godliness all wrong this week while I was preparing for this sermon. I equated godliness with godlikeness or holiness, even. So I was saying godliness is godlikeness. So if I was saying act manly, I would be saying act like a man. Well, the word godliness in Scripture doesn't represent acting like God. Which was kind of a shock for me when I started reading and studying this. So here's what godliness means in the Scriptures. And we're just going to keep it really simple. Devotion to God. Devotion to God. Just keep it that simple. Your calling... Your purpose in life as a Christian is to devote yourself to God. And the God that we know of Scripture is three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, if you go, I want you now... In your Bible time, your reading time, and when you see the word godly or godliness, that's what I want you to think about. And as I went back this week and did that, I was like, man, these passages make a lot more sense to me now that I understand that I'm being called in those particular passages to devoting my life to godliness. So, if you want to be identified as godly, you must give your devotion to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can just go ahead and extend that to say your life, if you're devoted to God, would look a lot like loving Him, living for Him, and longing for Him. That's your calling. Now, again, I'm throwing a lot of weight on you here. I'm going to give you some really good news 
Look at verse 3 again. Let's read it together. Let's look at this. And let's see the grace of God. His divine power has granted to us, the church, Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness. How, how many things has He given to us? Well, let's make sure. Granted in this sentence means to give and bestow. To just give over. What has Christ given us by His power? All things needed for life and godliness. Praise be to God. And so, you can put this in your pocket. If God has called you, He has equipped you. If God has called you, He has equipped you. He's not left you. He's given you what you need to be faithful, obedient, devoted to Him. You have it, Christian. Now the question is, are you using it? question is, do you have it? And I hope that you do. Salvation is coupled with calling. You cannot have heaven without being called to live a godly life. And that calling is not a recommendation. If you have Christ... He has given you everything you need to please Him. Not to live your good life, but to please Him. Now, what has He given you? Well, number one, He's given you Himself. He has given you His Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm going to guess, we're going to be in chapter 2. I'm going to guess that everyone in here, either as the parent or the child, has been very frustrated by either the other, the parent or the child, when something is needing to get done by the child, but it's not getting done, and the child says, you're not telling me what I'm supposed to do, and the parent's saying, I've told you everything you need to do. And it's like the mis there's a miscommunication. And a lot of times, as a parent, let's admit... We just forget to actually say what we want them to do. And they can't read our minds. And how many, how many times as kids have we said, we stomp off and like, I can't read your mind, you know? And that just happens. It happens because we can't read one another's minds. And so we can't please one another. 
And I, it happens in marriages. Sometimes we don't speak up, but we have an expectation in our mind that we're communicating to our spouse and we're like, you should know this. But they can't read our minds. It's kind of like that way with God. Uh, except he's communicated it, but we still can't understand it. A human being can read the words of God and not completely understand anything of God. A human being. Now, when that human being has been called from death to life, when they have been given Christ Jesus, when they have believed on Him, they receive something from God to help them understand what He wants. Look at verse 11. Let's start at 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit, capital S, means God's Spirit, right? When we see the capital S, we're talking about God's Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, right? I'm like, if you don't speak, I don't know what you're thinking. Which... Is in him. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The Spirit of God. What have you been equipped with in your calling? Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. A child of God, called by God, has the Spirit of God to know what will please God. Now, if you don't have the, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're verse 14. The natural person, meaning they don't have the Spirit of God does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If I say love your wife the way Christ loved the church, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you just don't get it. You might say you do, but you don't. Because you don't get Christ. You don't know the gospel. You don't understand the depths of your sin and that even because of the depths of your sin, God had the right to crush you. But instead, Christ loved you so much that he was crushed by the Father. He sacrificed for, for you even though you were a rebel sinner. You get frustrated with your spouse, husband, with your wife because she's not doing what you say because she's doing this or doing that and you're like, I can't put up with it. I don't have to love you. That's not Christ. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands the way the church submits to Christ. 
That we can just look at the world and say, yeah, they don't get it. They don't get it. That's the whole feminism movement that's gone on for the last 40, 50 years or longer, but is really taking headway now that a, that a woman has, that the, the woman doesn't have to answer to anybody. I don't have to answer to my husband. I don't have to submit to my husband, but yet they'll go to work and submit to a man at work. If we don't understand the relationship of Christ to his church, if we don't understand the gospel, then we think loving our wives when she's not being lovely is okay. We think not submitting to our husbands, even though he might be having a bad day or he might be on the wrong path, is okay. See, these are things that God says that we either get it and do it or we don't. And if you're not doing it, it might be because you don't get it. And if you're not getting it, it might be because you don't have the Spirit of God. And you need the Spirit of God. Because Romans 8 says, without the Spirit, you cannot please God. But I'm telling you, I want to try to take this back up into a mild, cheerful mode. Listen to me. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you're struggling to be uh, a submissive wife, or you're struggling to be a loving husband, ask God to help you. Because He can. He's called you to be that. And so he's going to equip you to do that. And I'm going to guarantee you something. I'm going to guarantee you something. You'll have victory. You will be obedient. Because God has given you his spirit so that you could please him. Now, I spent a lot of time on that one. But I want to give you quickly two other things that God has equipped you with. He has given to you. In order that you might live a godly life. And you're like, well, you're talking about marriages. Hmm. That's the first place you ought to be devoted to God. Apart from directly to God. Is in your marriage. Is in your home. That is your first responsibility of your devotion to God. Is your spouse. Because Your marriage represents the gospel. It's not my words. It's Paul's in Ephesians 5. He says, when I'm talking about marriage, this loving and submitting, I'm talking about the gospel. And if you live out your gospel and being devoted to God, you're going to show the world the gospel. You're going to show the world Christ. So the other two things. You've been given the word of God. Now, I want you to understand, oh, man, you have a Bible. I would assume most of you have more than one. Do you know how many people have died so that you could have a Bible in English? Like, I don't think we get it. So much blood, so many people burnt to death so that you could have a Bible. The streets of Europe ran red with blood in order to get us an English Bible. People 
were beheaded, stretched, quartered. That the word of God might come to you in English. Because it wasn't at one point. And it was a sentence of death to translate it into any other language than Latin. Death. And men and women took up the cause. You have been given the word of God. Now that's speaking in human sense. But it's without... It is massive to remember and understand that that's how important the word of God is. The bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. How many words did I say? Every word. If you feel weak and you're attempting to live up to godliness, if you feel unable, it might be because you're not eating. You, you know, you might be nibbling every now and then. That's like a marathon runner eating 200 calories a day. It ain't going to happen. You're going to die. You need to feast. That's what faith is. You know, that's what faith is. The ones who eat my flesh and drink my blood, Christ says, that's, that's the person who is constantly going to Him knowing that they need to feast on Him or they will die. That's faith. The Word of God has been given to you. The Word of God is powerful. We've already spoken of it. It created the universe. It Created you as a Christian. The Word of God is power. It is power to us who are being saved. Number three, you have the people of God. You have the people of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at this one passage and then we will move on from there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I want you all to forever think of this section in Scripture... As the lettuce patch. Lettuce patch. Because in this passage, you see the word let us, or the, the words let us, multiple times. Who is us? It's the church. It's your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain 
that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but in our meeting together, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The final day. By His divine power, He has given you, Christian, other Christians. More specifically, the ones that you are in fellowship with. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look at verse 26. Here is your biggest fear, your biggest concern. And so he doesn't just go on and start talking about something else. He goes directly to the issue that we never actually bring back to what we just read. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I got saved today. I'm going home. And I'm never coming back to church. I might not say that. I might even come back to church physically, but never once step in the church and actually be there spiritually. And when that happens, verse 26, I pray by the grace of God it doesn't, but verse 26 and 27 will be your end. You will continue in a life of sin. You will uh, say that you have received the knowledge of truth and you have heard it but you have trampled on the cross of Christ and continued in your sin and you can expect the fiery judgment and the fire that will consume you as an adversary. Because a saved Christian is a member of a covenant, not just with God, but with God's people. That's why we take the Lord's Supper together. That's why we sing together. That's why we say amen together. I'm just scratching the surface of this. If we're a people who just want to casually say hi and know each other and neglect to meet together, no, nah, we're not setting up, we're not setting up Ozark's Bible Church that we're having seven million functions, everything and everything. We expect everyone to be there at all times. No, I expect the Bible expects us to make an attempt to be obedient to the one another's in Scripture, which there are like 31 in the New Testament, maybe more. And you can only be obedient to the one another 
commandments if you are around one another. That's it. Because God has given you one another to help you live a life of godliness. You need it. Now, I just briefly explain the end. Second Peter. Oh man, there's so much more actually. Just notice in verse 4 what it's based on. By which he has granted to us his very precious or his precious and very great or magnificent promises. All of this, everything is guaranteed because it's a promise. You have the very promises of God. And what did we talk about with the students last week? He cannot lie. He cannot break his promise. So if you, if you Christian, are saying, I just can't, I can't live up to this, I can't do it. If, here's a promise, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. He was like, I just can't keep living this life. It's so tiresome. It's so exhausting. I just wanna I just wanna quit. I just wanna not have to worry about all that. Well, here's a promise for you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. If you feel like living this godly life is going to keep you from having friends in the world or doing things or that you're going to feel abandoned. You can go to the promise of Jesus that's in Hebrews and other places that I, God, will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible is full of the promises of God that are for you, Christian. And they are your fuel, your motivation to continue, to strive, to stand firm. And what are you doing? All the end. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. I told you in the beginning that godliness is not godlikeness. But when you pursue your calling of godliness, you will be pursuing godlikeness. All of this He's given to you that you can participate in His divine nature. What's the opposite? To be stuck and consumed in this wicked world, which is how that verse ends. Those are the two options. You be stuck and consumed in fellowship with this world or in Christ through His divine equipping, you can be partakers of God participants with fellowship of God. That's Christianity. That's the end. To be made into the image of Christ. To have fellowship with God because you are in the likeness of Christ. This is our pursuit. Godliness in order that we might have God-likeness. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, 
Might we know your promises? Might we know our calling? Would you press upon hearts? For those who are unsure, to ask questions, to seek guidance, to look in the Scriptures, to pray and ask for help. God, for those who are walking and pursuing their call, we give thanks that you have equipped. We give thanks that you are uh, enabling by your Spirit, your Word, and the fellowship of the body of Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.